Uh, when I um, started to put together the slides for this presentation, uh, talking about landscape change at uh, Avila, Quelby, and Umajimal, I think uh, it was a very ambitious project because, in fact, 20 minutes is very short to present two sites as interesting as these two and as different as these two. So this presentation will partly only highlight a few features um, telling you that there is something and trying to piece the mosaic um, together as far as um, possible within the limited time. And we can discuss it later. But of course I will also you know, try to make some reference to the other presentations we've been hearing before. And you rightly mentioned that it's necessary to arrive at a kind of comprehensive analysis, not looking at the pottery, for example, alone on the fields or whatever, but trying to piece it together with information about sites, about soils. And Nizar very nicely showed us what can be done with the comprehensive landscape analysis. Um, and essentially, uh, my work goes into this direction, but it's uh, less descriptive. It's trying to look for certain processes happening today, happening maybe in the past only, and what were the drivers of these processes. Okay, but um, enough um, general talking. Let's come to, okay, let's come to the sites. I mean, this is a satellite image from Google Earth. Um, these are the two areas I'm talking about right now. And here we have a 3D landscape model from the Holy Land satellite imagery um, atlas, um, which shows very nicely how you have a climatic transect in this area. Nisa shot it already for the Yamuk Valley. But I mean, uh, when you think about soils and when you think about the geomorphology, you can see very nicely in this image how landscape changes very dramatically in a very short distance, which is, of course, mostly related to climate. We have a Mediterranean climate over here. Um, when the air masses move up again from the Jordan Valley, they rain up mostly to the west. And you can see it from the satellite images on the soil color. When you arrive at the steppe region, it's getting um, yellow, while we have very nice reddish colors, typical Mediterranean red soils in the western area. You can also see the basalts um, coming from Jabal Druze with some darker colors over here. And you can see the drainage pattern, how we have a strongly dissected landscape to the west, um, while um, it's more concentrated when you come to the east and you have this Grand Canyon of Northern Jordan, Bali Shalala. And uh, when you go to the steppe, the landscape becomes essentially very level. Now I've put the three sites we are working on in this project um, in a rain uh, uh, map. So you can see that um, Umkais and Avila share approximately very similar amounts of uh, mean annual precipitation between 400 and 500 millimeters. But as you've seen on the previous slide, this area is more strongly dissected than Avila, which is quite close to the steppe. It's just about 50 kilometers and you arrive at zones with um, yeah, less than um, 200 millimeters. Ilumajimal, of course, represents the steppe. What, of course, is also interesting about Umkais is the basalt plateau. I'm not talking about this now, but um, this is um, an outstanding feature, of course, of this special uh, place. Okay, now um, I'm quite surprised that we have had nobody speaking about soil erosion and mismanagement and landscape degradation so far. Um, even Nizar's talk was, I mean, I, I really like this descriptive um, approach because it's presenting information without judging. And um, 
I think what you can already see from the landscape units is that there are certain laws determining what kind of landscape you're going to get. And these laws are essentially natural laws. It's the geology, of course, it's the climate, of course, it's the geomorphology, it's tectonics, all these things work on the landscape. And man, of course, also does contribute something. But um, when you see it on the landscape scale, this influence seems to me, at least in traditional patterns, rather limited. Of course, now we have bulldozers, we are building, we're expanding sites and so on. Um, but when we go back to this question of landscape change during historical times, to this question of mismanagement, um, I put forward a question, is this a degraded landscape? And that's how it's described sometimes in the literature, especially the older literature. Now, when we look uh, um, at this uh, nice valley here with a slowly dying orchard here because the springs are uh, tapped now, so it's not irrigated anymore, um, <coughs> you are looking at uh, Abilla and uh, it has a valley fill. And those who are a little bit trained uh, in geomorphology can immediately see it because we have kind of a cut here, you know, the slope is going down rather steeply and then suddenly it stops. And so um, it's quite a suspicious feature telling us there's something, you know, being down there in the valley. Um, and um, well, we now looked a little bit from further apart. Here's our fill. Uh, this hill here, this mountain, um, is not a natural hill, it's a city. Of course, you only know by excavation. And uh, it has been transformed. I mean, um, uh, only bulldozing and, of course, um, excavations, but um, most obviously, it is unfortunately bulldozing. People made their terraces here and exposed yeah, ancient city walls, telling us that this was heavily fortified. I think there were at least two walls running around the whole hill, large hill, very well defended. And now um, it's more or less leveled. Um, yeah, with round structures, and if you know what it is, you can assume that these represent structures, walls and stuff like this, um, now being leveled, rounded by erosion processes. So looking at this, you can say, okay, there has been quite a major landscape transformation. Yeah, this was a city, now it's just a rounded hill, talking about erosion, so um, maybe there's some major erosion going on there. And um, when you move up to other areas of the valley, um, I mean, uh, this is the city now, and now we are looking uh, at some slopes uh, further down here. You will realize that this landscape in the past has been a heavily uh, transformed um, man-made landscape because they were putting terraces into these rocks for making graves. And as you can see, I'm sorry, these, uh, these terraces have now been covered by soil cover. And so the question is, is this a first indication of man-made erosion, maybe due to Muslim mismanagement, leading you know, ultimately to a strong degradation of the um, uh, fertility of the region? Okay, um, yeah, degraded landscape, and I've put this nice grave cut into the rock, you know, <laughs> kind of symbolizing the burial of the fertility. Well, um, what this uh, rock cut feature what also tells us is that in antiquity already, um, these rock areas were apparently exposed and were taken advantage of. And um, you can, um, of course, um, cut stepwise terraces in it, you can cut your graves in it, you can get stones out of it, and um, you can also, by the way, harvest water from it. Yeah, I mean, this is one feature also to be mentioned uh, with Sufyan's terraces. Certainly, this suspicious um, coincidence with the, uh, with the tunnels, but um, you can also, I mean, tap the rainwater 
and you don't even need so much space, you know. I mean, there are still, you know, figures in the literature to be discussed, how much space you need exactly, but this depends, of course, also on the annual rainfall. So just a limited amount of cleaned rock will produce a runoff, which can be, you know, diverted into a cistern or a terrace and be utilized. So the bare rock is not really an indication for a degraded landscape. In contrast, it's a used landscape, and it can be used quite effectively. Now, when you look at the area today also, uh, it doesn't really look so degraded. It depends where you look at. I mean, when you look at those slopes and those buried um, remains of a settlement, so maybe you get the idea. But I mean, here, look at this. I mean, we have a, yeah, it's on the top of the plateau. It's heavily used. You can see a harvester over there. You can see cucumbers over here. And this is a valley. I mean, uh, in the valley, Vadikwelvi, still rich, you know, for growing wheat. So it doesn't really look like to be a really poor, you know. Now, but if you want to know this precisely, of course, we have to look into the soil. And I'll start with a profile which I consider more or less typical for what we find on the plateau in the region. Um, you have seen it on the slides. Um, I've cut out this a little bit to make it shorter. Um, most of those hills um, are more or less level plateaus. And so the question, of course, is, um, I mean, this is more or less continuously covered by soil, but, uh, you know, maybe this is just a leftover of something which was much deeper in the past, and also people were talking about fertile topsoil. Because at least in Europe, on areas with a high amount of organic matter, it's the topsoil which is fertile, due to humus and complexing, you know, agents um, storing nutrients. However, here we have something which is called terra rossa, and, um, well, this has been a little bit disturbed due to construction activities, but this organic layer on top of these soils is usually very, very limited, so it's really thin. So, I mean, it's really hard to identify, um, for example, a buried topsoil. Um, here we have a burial process, so, in fact, this here represents a buried soil. Um, but you can't, I mean, you, you do have an increase, in fact, of organic matter there when you do the laboratory, but you cannot see it really in the field. What you see in the field is that we have a different texture and we have an increase of calcium carbonate in the top, which means essentially that this soil further down here had more time and more water to develop, while this on top has been mixed with um, calcareous material. It could be eolian deposition. It could also be from rock exposures because we have soft marls sometimes exposed there and the marl really is very easily eroded. You can see it in Bali Arab, by the way. Bali Arab, you can see the southern slopes of, of, or the lower slopes are so active that uh, even today, I mean, you, you can see these buried um, HA horizons, the humus horizons, very active. I mean, 10 years or so ago, there was one strong rain or some plowing and immediately something starts moving. It's very different here in this area. And I, I, I postulate that these plateaus are, in fact, very stable landscapes. And, I mean, we have some indications, for example, from this profile. We dated um, this um, redistribution process by OSL, and we have something like 9,000 years ago. Yeah? Approximately 9,000 years ago, apparently, this soil had been exposed to sunlight, so maybe something had been eroded here, we don't know, but certainly something has been redeposited on top of it, um, which has, as I mentioned before, more calcium carbonate and is less intensively developed. So from this we get two indications. First, um, the soil cover which we have today has been enriched with calcium carbonate. 
that means it has become either drier or we have had an, an, a mobilization of a fresh unweathered material. And secondly, um, we have um, um, processes going on creating a level surface. And the level surface does not necessarily reflect the rock properties because the rock, we have typical cast weathering, which is kind of uh, tongs and spaces and caves and stuff like this, you know, it's not level. Now, when we first published this, we thought the original landscape was probably something like hilly and wooded and stuff, you know, and then people came and cut the forest and plowed things. So they started to, um, yeah, move. And so we got to this landscape with, you know, some rocks being exposed and some other areas being buried, which of course is a very likely thing. But meanwhile, I don't think it was man. I think this is something which is related to the soil properties, and it's the graves which gave me the idea. I can only touch this very shortly here now, but um, I think the real issue we are talking about is sheet flows. And sheet flows, I mean, these soils are very rich in um, clay. So when you saturate this clay, it will start creeping, like your toothpaste, you know? And when you, when you really saturate it, it will also expand. That means it can even creep a little bit uphill, yeah, not too much, just a few centimeters. But since it is expanding, you know, it can take some step upward, and it can creep even more at some point of time later. And if you saturate it even more, you can, you know, get something like solifluction. And I think these processes were really happening, and that's why we get a very level surface today. Now, when we look in the valley, I mean, this is the one thing to look on the plateau. And now we go down to the valley, and of course, um, if things are moved up here, you know, they should first end up there. And then, of course, it goes on, and you go to the Jordan Valley or to the Dead Sea, but ultimately will end. Uh, but of course, if you want to understand what happened here and what happened, I mean, in, in, in the recent past where things moved to, we look into this. And as mentioned before, we have a fill there. So um, we try to better understand this fill. And in fact, um, I dug a hole, a pit, yeah, a profile, I never say pit, it's a profile, by hand in 2005. And I had to dig by hand. And I reached about two meters. And about two meters, we needed about a week to dig it, really with an axe and stuff. It's not easy because it's very clay rich. And we thought, this is it. But then, Vajji Karasne, who is not here, unfortunately, started to excavate um, uh, so-called Roman bridge inside the site, which is just a few kilometers uh, downstream, and uh, it got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I thought, okay, <laughs> if we have so much sediment over there, I should have a closer look at this. But this time we took a machine. It's just agricultural land, so we started to dig a hole with a bulldozer. And as we are doing this, we are realizing that there is another water tunnel. I mean, we've been hearing before that water tunnels are widespread in Avila also. And this tunnel was very strange because it came up out of a slope somewhere here, you know, and ends nowhere, leading nowhere. But uh, looking closely, we observed that there are some curious stones lying around suspiciously, you know, in the course of, the, of this um, uh, tunnel. And we were fortunate enough to do some geoelectrics with uh, Rashid Jaradat from Yamuk University. And um, doing this, we noticed there's some change, you know, of the connectivity. And so, uh, yeah, here's the missing aqueduct bridge. So you see part of the arch here exposed. So this landscape looked very different in the Roman Byzantine period. Imagine again, here's the valley, all this fill, you know, these slopes were going down like this, like the slope angle is in the Byzantine period. This was a steep water uh, valley. And um, well, um, time is running, so I try to speed up. Um, we have some 
different dates from this. We have some historic sources mentioning construction of tunnels there. We have first dates from uh, for mortar from the tunnel, and apparently this this bridge is you know built probably first century, but renovated or so reused later. Um, I will come to this fill very quickly because it's very important. We do have associated with the foundations of these this bridge. We do have well sorted gravels pointing to what I interpret as a perennial small creek. Um, developed on, on top of a paleosol here in the bottom. The paleosol tells us on cemented gravels, in the very remote past, this was a, a fermal valley, then we had a dry wadi, then we get this stream, and then we get well, two meters of brexham, which I took as the source for, I mean, the bedrock in the first uh, attempt to dig it by hand, and then we get about two uh, meters of collubium. And we are still struggling with the dating, but apparently, we have something like remote past here, stable landscape for quite a long time, perennial creek running then Roman time, up to the Byzantine time, and then something like sixth century, we get about two meters or so or even more of, of debris. And um, then in the Islamic period, things change, no river anymore, just this dry colluvium coming down. Okay, put this in the regional context, my time is running out, I think it's even too many slides now. Wadi um, Shalala is nearby, and um, I just want to very shortly mention an alluvium, you can see here, in, investigated by Carlos Cordova. And um, of course, the catchment area of Wadi Shalala is even bigger than Wadi Kwebi, so it's even more difficult to interpret these sequences because you have just more variables going into this wadi. But interestingly, also here, when you look at it, we have a large so-called colluvial unit um, bearing, uh, very, being very similar to what we have in Wadi Kwalbi. And also, I mean, just to mention this also, in the, in the theater of Beit Ras, we have a whole big theater, the second biggest east of the Jordan River, just disappearing um, below sediments and being rediscovered uh, recently. And these sediments also um, are, are clearly, in my opinion, transported by water. Um, of course, I mean, you need first something to mobilize all this debris from a broken city, whatever, you know. Um, but, I mean, I would say really, this is, I mean, a lot of stuff going on. And we have uh, C14 dates from this, also 6th century, largely. Okay. Um, now, in order to understand how landscape and landscape change are connected, um, we have to understand what exactly has been done in the fields. And in this context, the climatic gradient between Umar and the western areas helps us to understand better how the role of climate looks like and is connected with man's activity. And I mean, just to mention this, I mean, people have been discussing how land use changed the landscape. And Laudermilk went here in the 30s and came. He, did not, he didn't dig even one profile, not even one. But he postulated that this is all the rocks exposed is man-made erosion. And this has been cited 10 times, and then it was established. But when you look for the evidence, there is no evidence, you know. So I'm not saying that there has been no man-made erosion, but it's not as simple as this. And when you look at the fields, you know, it's quite interesting to see. I mean, Dominic spoke about this already, and Nora and Hussein. We have a very, very um, um, variable um, pattern. And um, I'm not going into this now. This is some ideas of the pottery and how we want to correlate it with soil and um, uh, geomorphology information. Uh, but just to, to, to mention a few things, we have, for example, some areas where you can still see remains of fields um, still preserved. They shouldn't be there if we had a heavy erosion going on. And, um, but interestingly also, when you look at the soils, how they distributed um, compared to the terrace walls, the soil pattern does not really reflect um, these terraces. 
Um, very different landscape present Omajimal. Here we have an um, irrigated landscape, but even here it's interesting that th these irrigated sediments are just a small part of the whole soil lying around there. There's something like 30 centimeters maybe of man-made sediments. And then we have um, more or less, uh, the whole landscape is covered by four meters of less. And uh, this is something which has long been suspected. And um, I mean, now we really, I, I think now we really understood what's going on there. I can't go into detail, but even in this Lewis landscape, you know, you find football-sized boulders of rocks being moved there, certainly by water. And uh, so there have been events, recurring events here, able to carry rocks like this, um, which is, I think, really interesting. Okay, coming back very quickly to our villa, which I think is a very good um, case to just illustrate what we have going on here. We have very strong variation of soil properties in this area. And um, uh, these are probably result of historic land use. So land use did have an impact on the landscape, for sure. But it's not yet you can say, you know, um, it's generally bad. It is, you know, just creating a very um, variable pattern. And maybe we can be really, we can reconstruct what has been done exactly on the fields out of the soil properties combined with information like the pottery. And I think this approach is much more promising than going, as it has been in past publications, saying, okay, we had found so many sites, so we had more people, and we have more sediment, so there is a causal relationship. As long as you don't know what happened on the fields, you cannot say that it's man-made erosion. And, for example, there are other regions, like northern Germany, Rhine Valley, where you had a very heavy land use Roman period, but no soil erosion. And people were saying, yeah, they have applied you know, soil protection measures. But you know, I'm asking, where's the evidence? Do we have any evidence that they did really conduct soil preservation? You know, and if you have no evidence, you know, this is just a circular argument. You know, you are postulating out of um, missing sediments that there has been, you know, soil protection. Um, okay, now just some very few slides at the end to show you how things vary. You know, I still haven't understood how this happens, but you know, just look at the stones. It's so different. The colors are changing. So I think there's still a story to be told out of this. To conclude, the plateaus in the area which we're investigating, especially to the west, Mediterranean area, are continuously covered by fertile, very fertile terra rossa. We have strong variations of soil properties. The erosion of fertile topsoil, you can forget it, it's personal role. Former grave terraces very clearly point to soil creep. So there have been events where the soil was really wet and then it started moving. Um, we have huge valley fills, which are apparently deposited largely in the 6th and 7th century. So there has been probably a major change, which coincided apparently with the drop of the groundwater table. We have enrichment with calcium carbonate, also a feature of less water. We have very different land use present in sedimentarian, and our ongoing research, inshallah, will help us to understand better what really happened there on the land. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much, uh, Bernhard, for this insight into your recent work you have been done. I'm sure there are a lot of questions in the audience. Yes, Bert. Um, would you willing to go over again or explain a little bit more completely this, this uh, very drastic erosion that you just had on your last list in the 6th and 7th centuries AD? Thank you. Which, uh, you mean By the way, it's a wonderful presentation. You mean um, this slide? This is a very, very um, discussed topic. And I have to start with that 
we have no agreement at all on the um, dynamics or the explanation of processes leading to the accumulation or incision of valley fills. If you read the literature, opinions are totally different. People, there's the people saying moist phases lead to aggregation, the people saying moist phases lead to incision. I mean, um, there are some sets of models, but they're heavily discussed. I personally believe that um, probably it's the dry period which lead to ac uh, accumulation of these fills, and it's the wet periods which lead to incision. So I interpret this cautiously as simply a change to drier conditions. But however, you have this debris here, and the debris, I mean, I mean you just need to move it, you know, and it's, it's, it's layered in a form that puts, points to fluvial movements. So you really need a lot of water to carry this down there. And um, it has been sorted to some, some degree. I mean, you have some big boulders sometimes falling in. But I mean, this, this speaks, you, you, can, you can in fact estimate how much water was going on there. This particular profile has been um, made of discussion because an earthquake might break the aqueduct bridge, so you get an artificial water outlet. So this could, of course, also partly explain such a pattern, but we have it the whole body, we have it upstream also the aqueduct bridges. So this is something um, which is a regional thing also happening in the side wadis. And, you know, for example, Wadi Shalala, it's not as well preserved as, as here because it's a smaller wadi with a smaller catchment area. Um, and we are lucky that this has not been removed by a later period of incision. Now, um, the sources of these, you know, are probably mainly the valley slopes. It's not the plateau. Yeah. Um, so what happened here, to have it in a nutshell, is probably had something like an earthquake, or I mean, we're discussing this, or maybe just slope collapses due to heavy rains, uh, mobilizing this debris. And then it's redistributed by very heavy rains. And um, in fact, there is um, there's a, it's a popular science book written by a British journalist uh, called um, uh, Catastrophe. And he's talking about a worldwide event uh, connected with the so-called mystery wheel described by Procopius in the history of wars for the year 536 AD, um, speaking about a year without sun. And uh, we are currently, I mean, there's a big discussion going on whether it's an eruption, volcanic eruption. There are several candidates. And I think the most um, um, likely candidate at the moment is the Ilupango in Santander. So this might have caused um, a prolonged period of, I mean, just a strange climate with extremely heavy rainfalls hitting some regions, which could explain this pattern. Yeah. And then a change to dry conditions, which might explain why we have um, colluvial sediments over here. So this could be a one-time catastrophic event coupled with the tendency to dry conditions. But that's just hypothetical so far. Uh, I read that book, Catastrophe, believe it or not, and the most remarkable thing happened to the book when I was reading it. It fell to bits. And I think that's a good comment on the book. Uh, it self-destructed itself. Uh, I do want to make the comment that um, uh, you can often get uh, very heavy rainstorms in a period of drought. And if we're looking at a period of drought here, then that's the sort of time when there would be less attention to growing on more marginal soils, so the land is not being looked after to the same extent, or lost of forest cover, or something like that. And then you get a heavy torrential downfall and you'll get this wadi deposit. So this could represent drought rather than uh, overall more rain. And here you say largely 6th century AD, and then in your conclusion you say 6th to 7th century AD, which is really not the Amaya period, Bert. 
And so uh, you start off by saying Muslim neglect uh, in your uh, presentation. Well, is there any? Is that what you're proposing? I mean, no, that's I, just no, controversial to say that. No, I mean, I should have made this more clear. It's nonsense, of course. I mean, when you talk about yes, but I think it's very bad that you put that at the beginning, because someone can take that and say your paper is about Muslim neglect of the Jordanian countryside. To make it's this, too provocative. I, I, should, I should make this more clear. I mean, to be very clear about that, I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm starting, I come from environmental sciences, you know. So I started up with ideas, you know, uh, conserving better, the, you know, the King Talal Dam and pr uh, protecting from erosion. So people realized that they had built it, you know, um, based on quite, um, yeah, um, non-existing data, in fact, you know, uh, to make an assessment. And so uh, in these days, the prevailing theory was that pastorals and Muslim conquest, you know, brought pastorals and they are all guilty, you know, of landscape change and deforestation, destruction, and so on. And I think, yes, we should make this more clear. This is a myth. It's just nonsense. I mean, it's quite interesting to say that, to see that forest regeneration here took place evidently in phases of pastoralism. It's not the pastoralists who are using the forest. It's the, it's the settled people. And uh, when you talk about you know, uh, cutting trees, I mean, all the evidence we have so far, it's the Roman Byzantine period. Of course, when we have the strong um, agricultural use of the land, but the forest is being diminished. But it regenerates here in the north, in particular in the pastoral periods. And um, I mean, when you talk about all this, it's, I mean, biased excavations, for example, in church, but also, I mean, um, uh, I was really, I mean, benefiting from moving to geography and uh, having discussions with human geographers. We are talking about discourses here, and discourses, I mean, set a certain framework of discussion, and um, by the simple, I mean, setup of the discourse, some uh, results are predetermined. You can't really leave the discourse. So it's kind of an unquestioned paradigm that pastoralism is negative and that um, you know Muslims are underdeveloped and you know brought misery, and um, and uh, it's simply not not standing the facts. But it has been useful to provide legitimacy to create legitimacy for colonialism and also for Zionism. We have to say, you know, yeah. Please, Nizar. Well, I'll comment first that uh, probably all the forests were burned to make all that pottery we were, we've been looking at it since the morning. Um, this actually, this picture gives me the impression of, uh, uh, of base level change. So it looks like tectonics more than climate. But that's my own uh, uh, feeling. It, it just looks like, okay, you suddenly have a valley here and that's probably because of downfaulting, and that's that's just how I see it. But you can take it for what it's worth. We should discuss this further because there is a very heavy earthquake here. I think in 553 or something, and this could in fact match the dates which we have. And. Um, 551. And I've read in some papers um, investigating seismites that they estimate this earthquake to be something like 9 or so on the Richter scale, which is extremely heavy, while the 750 or 48, 49 earthquake was something like 7.5 or so. So we are dealing probably with an enormously destructive event in the 6th century, which could certainly you know, change base levels of the bodies. But I have not heard about, you know, not read anything making this more clear so far. Okay, one last question to this topic. I'm trying to, to summarize some of the comments here, because I think it is, it's important uh, to, again, to relate. And I think that in your presentation, it was probably one of the answers itself of, of your problem, is the need to relate 
these geomorphological issues with the, pos the positional transformations of the built structures. And I think that that's the place where you can find more answers to your questions. Because uh, following what Nisar was saying, that it's not clear if it's uh, tectonic or uh, climatic, it can be a combination of both. In the sense that an earthquake, and a I mean period that we, we had in the sixth century, can create a destruction of uh, uh, some of these uh, built structures that, for instance, in, in, in your drawings, what you so showing the before and after landscape, I think that the before are missing all the retaining uh, walls in the, in the slopes for cultivation. That the earthquake combined with famine and with uh, drought can create the, the abandonment and then the rain and uh, uh, flash floods can uh, finish the, the, the work. Let's say, I think it's, it's important, let's say, to combine all, all these elements that also the, the factors, let's say, the, the, the social factors of the famine and the plague uh, that were almost at the same time of this famous earthquake right. can explain these problems of <coughs> lack of resources to maintain and to keep these built uh, landscapes of terraces and then the earthquakes and the, and the, and the flash floods as, uh, in, in a drought period, as uh, Alan was commenting, can finish the, the, the work. Right, I, I mean, it's important bubonic plague, 540, first bubonic plague, first pandemic, bubonic plague, yeah, yeah, but also, the also, also in the uh, 500, uh, in the 6th century, there was a, a right. major... Uh, uh yeah, but it starts 540, and this is another interesting question, because bubonic plague is known as an endemic disease to Roman doctors in these days. It's described in the ancient literature, but it becomes a pandemic in 540, and it continues as a pandemic until the 8th century, and then it disappears. And so far, what I read about this, we have no idea why it became a pandemic at some point of time, it certainly has to do with the vectors, which are rats, and these might be influenced by climatic issues, but you, we, we simply don't know. And then it disappears at some point in the 8th century, you also don't know whether it disappears, you know. And we, even we don't know whether the um, Black Death, which appears in the 14th century, is the same disease or something else. Um, but just to, to mention something, I mean, um, which I left out due to time reasons, one of the major, I mean, um, valley forming process here is not a steady erosion grain by grain and not even soil creep, it's landslides. And there's a groundbreaking work of field and bending in nearby Wadi Ziklab, um, which explains how you can get a kind of chessboard pattern. And I'm in the process of discussing with colleagues um, whether we can have something similar in Wadi Kwelbi. We can for, say for sure out of air photos with a recent comparison that um, the 1991-1992 rainfalls, which are really heavy in Jordan, especially also in, in this valley in the north, in Wadi Kwelbi, did not lead to any any kind of uh, mass movement, um, but they did in Wadi Siglab, you know, and um, so um, this might also be, you know, an, an attempt to get closer to this, and maybe just to mention you shortly, I mean, when you drive Sharel uh, Uden to Amman, it's built on active landslides, so these things, they move, yeah, every year by a fraction of millimeters, but of course, if you get right conditions, you know, it's just, you know, moving a little bit more, and then you forget about the street, you know.